Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion and our first episode of 2023. On this episode, we are joined by Stephanie Canis, an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist that has taken a special interest in treating patients who have sustained traumatic brachial plexus injuries. She discusses mechanisms of injury, common surgical procedures, and the role of upper extremity therapists in restoring function for these patients. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Stephanie. So, hey, everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We have Stephanie Canis with us this evening. And Steph, just give us a little bit of a background about who you are, where you're currently working, and what area you're working in. Perfect. Again, my name is Stephanie Canis, and I am an occupational therapist. I have been in practice for 21 years. I currently work at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and actually have been here for 21 years in Rochester, Minnesota. So I primarily have done hand therapy for the last 15 years. I am one of the therapists that has taken more of a lead role in our brachial plexus program where we have a multidisciplinary clinic. And so we work directly with the surgeons and the rehab doctors to help facilitate rehabs, mainly for adults, but some kids with more traumatic brachial plexus injuries. So I will see my patients maybe before surgery, while they're in the hospital, right after surgery, or several months down the road when the nerve and the muscle begin to connect again. So what is the most common type of injury that will cause a brachial plexus? How does it happen? Good question. So there is a really fun rule out there in life, and I pulled it up. It's called the Naraka's Rules, and it's like the rule of 70. So typically 70% of all patients with brachial plexus injuries occur from road traffic accidents. 70% of those traffic accidents are motorcycle or bicycle, and 70% of those have multiple injuries. 70% have a supraclavicular lesion, and what that means is that lesion of the brachial plexus or injury is above the clavicle, and typically 70% of them have at least one avulsed root, so that literally means that nerve root is pulled out of the spinal cord. And then 70% of those have persistent pain with that avulsion for the rest of their life. So that's sort of some little quick facts on brachial plexus injuries. That's a great visual. I've never, I have worked with peds and we use the Naracus, I guess, levels, but I'd never heard the 70%. That's a good, good visualization for me to remember when it's happening, why it's happening, where it's happening, and even the effects of it. Yeah, I like that rule because it really helps me. And then when I do some teaching of with patients or with other therapists, I think it's so important to remember that they have multiple injuries. Those injuries can be orthopedic in nature, but they also can have like a traumatic brain injury. So now you have another complication in how are you going to instruct them in this really complicated rehab? 
That's a good point. Like it's difficult for us as clinicians to understand the brachial plexus itself and the injuries. So how do you get, how do you explain it to just a patient who doesn't have those other complications? Like explain it simple enough that they understand and not talking over their head. Where I work, I'm really fortunate. We have a team and the team all tries to send a consistent message. So they hear it multiple times. So typically, by the time they've come to therapy, they've heard it once or twice, but they've also gotten so much information in that prior appointment that they need to hear the information again, and maybe they need to hear a longer explanation. So depending on the injury, let's just say they had an upper trunk injury. And so that would be a C5, C6 type injury or a brachial plexus injury that involves those nerve roots for sake. I always talk about the brachial plexus and how our nerves are connected to our spinal cord and they come out of our neck and they form the superhighway out and then they come down into the arm through the axilla and they start to branch out and go to all the different parts of the arm to either control movement, so they control muscle, or sometimes again they do control some sensory function of the hand as well. And so we talk about what type of injury they've had. So there's a couple different types of injuries you can have with a brachial plexus injury from trauma. So some of those can be, again, the nerve root is literally yanked out of the spinal cord. So a lot of times we talk about that as if I were to pull out And this is sort of getting to be a bad example because it talks about landline telephones and a lot of us don't have (laughs) landlines anymore. (laughs) Talk about like landline telephones. If you were to pull a jack out and the wires were to break, they sort of splay apart. So we would talk about those fiber optics. So I might instead use a visual of the kids that get those little light wands with all those little fibers that light up. I might talk about something like that where you can't shove the wires back into the spinal cord. And so we have to figure out a different way to make those muscles work down below. And they sort of are already aware of that from the doctors, like that nerve just isn't going to repair itself. We have to reconstruct how those muscles are going to work down in the arm, wherever they may be. For a C5, C6 injury, that most likely that will be the musculocutaneous nerve. And so a lot of them are going to lack elbow flexion and even some shoulder function, depending on that type of injury. And so we talk about how the doctors can reroute some of those things. That's one type of injury. Another injury is a stretch. So you can have a stretch of a nerve injury. And I always talk about that as I like to use a slinky and luckily slinkies are still out there and they're not antiquated like my landline telephone. But if you were to stretch out a slinky, it's never going to go back to that original shape. So sometimes the doctors have to go in and they're going to put in what's called a nerve graft. They're going to take a nerve from maybe your leg and they're going to then insert that into that damaged area so that nerve can have a really good connection again. And eventually that signal will go down to those muscles that aren't working. I think the hardest thing for a lot of our patients to hear is nerves don't grow very fast. 
that grow a millimeter a day. And so a lot of times I literally have a ruler where I'm working because of all the measurements we do as hand therapists. And I show them what a millimeter looks like a day. I show them an inch a month. And I'll talk to them about this is going to take a long time for it to get better. So those are some of the ways I start to explain injuries to patients if they need that explanation. So Stephanie, you mentioned that you are fortunate to work in a multidisciplinary clinic. What does that look like? Or even maybe take us through what a patient might experience when they come to the clinic after a traumatic injury and who all they see. They see a lot of people. So the nice thing about our breakout plexus clinic, it's multidisciplinary. So we have neurologists, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, uh, we have physiatrists. They're the ones that really make the ultimate decisions on how to treat or reconstruct the brachial plexus from what may still be intact, or maybe if they don't have anything intact, how can we take other parts of the body and create function into that arm? So they do a lot of that. They do a lot of the functional testing for us. A lot of our patients come in, they'll have EMGs with us, so we can know that day where their level of return is or is not. They go through the series. They see the doctors. A lot of times the doctors will call us into the room and we'll go into the room and we'll have that face-to-face conversation. We'll be talking with the surgeon. We'll be talking with the therapist and we'll be talking with the patient and any of their family members that are in the room about what we need to address for rehabilitation. So that could be pre-surgical management or it could be after they've done surgery. What do we need to do? And we really like to do that that way because where I work, we're a very destination medical center, which in my opinion means a lot of people come see us for the surgeries. They follow up with us intermittently and then we send them home to work on this home program themselves or with their local therapist. You mentioned you would see patients pre-surgery, what is the goal? Like, what are you working on pre-surgery? So I think sometimes that varies. And that's a great question. So sometimes patients will come in, they have a lot of pain. They've seen some of the pain doctors as well to address the pain from a medication standpoint. But can we do any like graded motor imagery with these patients to help them with some of that pain recognition? Sometimes they're coming in and they have limited range of motion. So they have joint contractures because they have not been passively ranging their hand. And so a lot of times we're really working hard on getting their hand to be nice and supple. And especially the MCP joint that has to get down into a nice flex position. We hate patients that are sort of in a fixed claw position because it's really hard to get function back in that hand. A lot of times too, a lot of our patients are really limited in forearm supination and external rotation of the shoulder. So those are all really important things from a pre-surgical management that we really work on. So a lot of times we'll teach our patients a home stretching program. We will teach them if they need any edema control measures for any reason because they don't have a good muscle pump action to help facilitate edema reduction. We can do that. 
a lot of times we're fabricating orthotics for these patients. So we're making a really nice wrist, hand, finger orthosis. We always like to make that in the intrinsic plus position with the thumb out in a nice abducted position, a functional abduction position. Sometimes if they have an ulnar nerve injury, we're also making like an anti-claw type splint for them to wear during the day. If someone comes in and they are in a fixed, almost like MP contracture where their MPs are staying at an extension, we'll make dynamic MP flexion orthoses. I don't really like flexion gloves at that point because I don't feel like they target the MP. So we're sort of looking at those programs. What can we help facilitate, see them one or two times before they go back home and get them set up for a successful program? So that's some of the pre-surgical management we do. How compliant usually are the patients you see when they, I mean, you know, this is a long-term injury, as we all know, and like how compliant, I know a lot of times the few patients that I've had, they get frustrated and, you know, they're like, "Eh, I'll just deal with it the way it is, or I'll just cut it off or, you know, like, I mean, they get very, (laughs) I mean, that's drastic, but how do you keep them compliant and motivated, especially when you're not seeing them on a regular basis? One of the things we do is we, again, while we're working with them, we're talking to them. This is a really long haul. I address that they're probably going to get frustrated and maybe not see progress. And so a lot of times I encourage these patients to keep a journal. This is what I could do. And now I can do this. Or even keep for more of the people that are into photos and videos is taking continued pictures of progress of, look, this is how much further this joint can bend so they can see that progress. Because I think with any patient, when you're living with an injury every day, 365 days of the year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it gets really frustrating. You can't see progress. But if I'm seeing them intermittently or even a local therapist seeing them intermittently, we're able to detect some of those small changes of progress. So that's, I think, compliance and and adherence to programs can be challenging. But again, I try to really get them to do some journaling and really instruct them that sometimes I'll even say the doctors aren't going to do surgery until you can do this. Or I'll be like, if we can't get your MPs done, the doctors are going to want to do this surgery and that's going to look like this. So if we can get a head start, and avoid that part of surgery, you're going to be in better shape. So I do have pretty frank conversations with some of them and telling them what's going to happen if they don't do the exercises as well, or what could be in store if they decided to go down that route. What are some of the more common surgical interventions that you're seeing patients for afterward? Sure. So a lot of times our doctors are doing various nerve transfers. So one of the probably really well-known ones that we do see is the nickname is called the Oberlin's transfer. And that's really where you take an ulnar nerve fascicle from the triceps region and sort of swing it over to the musculocutaneous nerve up in the biceps. And so then you just have to wait for the nerve regeneration and then they'll start activating elbow flexion by using an ulnar nerve motion such as wrist ulnar deviation, or even like a lateral key pinch. So that's one. Other things we see are, we see a lot of times 
where they will take intercostal nerves, so your breathing nerves, and they're going to hook them into either that musculocutaneous nerve or if that it's been too long where they can't do just a nerve transfer, sometimes they'll take a muscle out of your leg called the gracilis and they'll put that in to be your new elbow flexor. And so then it will be a intercostal to get elbow flexion. So those are some of the common ones we see. We do see some with the shoulder as well. And those can vary. And it really is dependent on the patient. It depends what they have and what spare parts they can use. And so sometimes other common things are is just where a patient just needs a nerve graft. So they're just going to, they had a more of a stretch injury to that nerve or the nerve root of the brachial plexus is still good. So they can just do a nerve graft down below. So another one I just thought of, it is, again, the common name that a lot of facilities use might be the lychee Vang Wong procedure. And that's where they take the triceps branch to the anterior division of the axillary nerve. So that's where you're going to start thinking of what can you do with your deltoid to restore some of that shoulder motion. But you're going to be thinking of elbow extension or wrist extension to get that motion. So those are some of the common ones that I see. So I know you've mentioned that we're playing the long game here. And you also mentioned that being in, and I think a lot of us that are in more urban settings, we do experience patients coming in, they have their surgery, then they go home or they go back to not close or they're not doing their therapy. With these patients, because again, you're playing that long game, do you see like are even the patients that do live close that could come to therapy do you find that you aren't seeing them regularly that you're hey we know we're waiting on this nerve to wake up here are a few things work on this for a little bit come back and see me in a couple of weeks and let's check your progress see where you're at versus seeing them twice a week maybe like a post fracture or whatever that you might be seeing them more on a consult basis initially when you're just waiting for this nerve to wake up yes a lot of times we're just, we're doing consult basis. I would say maybe have them come back every four to six weeks, depending on where we think that nerve is waking up because I don't want to use all their therapy visits up while I'm waiting for the nerve to wake up because I can do more therapy once the nerve wakes up or the muscle wakes up, however you want to look at it. So post-surgical intervention, how successful are these surgeries? And I know it depends on the patient and the circumstances, but typically do you have or see good outcomes after these surgical interventions from a functional standpoint? One of the really important things for anyone who is treating a patient with a brachial plexus injury, especially if it involves multiple nerves or nerve roots, is really our goal is to restore a helper hand. So they're not going to have the precision and fine motor detail and strength that they may have had beforehand. They're going to have a helper hand to help stabilize and help carry and do those activities. And so that's one of the things that from the first visit and going forward, we're trying to emphasize is this is a helper hand. Unfortunately, So far in my practice, I'm hoping, you know, I still have a good 20 years left. 
I'm hoping we can figure out a better way to get intrinsics to innervate faster, especially if you have an injury way up by your clavicle. That nerve to innervate your intrinsics takes too long and that muscle is going to die before the nerve ever regenerates down to that level. So intrinsic hand function, we haven't figured out quite yet. I would say the things the doctors are most successful at is elbow flexion. And you do need elbow flexion to get that hand back up to your mouth. And so that's one of the important things. A lot of times with my patients, I tell them you don't even need a wrist. And often the doctors fuse wrists. You need an elbow more than you need a wrist. You need fingers more than you need a wrist. And you need that shoulder to come into like external rotation a little bit to get that hand into like at least zero degrees of external rotation. So it's easier to bring that arm up to your mouth if you wanted to help have a feeding hand, help wash your face, those types of things. What are some of your go-to assessments for these patients, either like you talked about assessing their function or even just when you're assessing a patient, whether it's preoperatively, postoperatively, what are some of your go-tos? Good question. So a lot of times when I'm looking at it, if I'm just going to look at doing a functional outcome measure, I can do a dash or a quick dash. But to me, that doesn't really tell me what I want to know about that patient. I like to do them quick and dirty functional outcome measures, as I call them. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because I'd rather spend all my efforts on treatment because I only get to see them for maybe an hour once. And so a lot of times I'll do the patient-specific functional scale because I want to know what's important to them to try and use that as tools to help motivate them to be adherent to their program. So that's probably one of the big ones that I do. I don't even, this is going to sound bad. I don't even manual muscle test my patients because they just came from the physician office and they just manual muscle tested everything. So I don't typically do that. Most of my patients, when I see them in our clinic, I typically don't even do grip or pinch because most of my patients don't have hand function. So really what I'm looking at is I'm looking at range of motion. What do they have actively? And you can sort of get that from the muscle manual test that the physicians just did. But I really want to know passive range of motion deficits, pre-surgical. Those are some of the things I really want to look at. Post-surgical, again, I'm starting to look at more the active range of motion. What do they have? I'm starting to do more manual muscle tests, especially ones that nerve and muscle connect. You said pre-surgical treatment would include graded motor imagery. Do you encourage that after as well? Yes, I do. I think it's one of those things where I really think it's really important for the patient to start practicing that as soon as surgery is over. In our facility, often we get to see them in the hospital while they're in there post-surgically. And so a lot of times I can go in there and I can say, hey, this is what they did. So when the nerve and the muscle connect again, which should take, you know, sometimes it can take six months, sometimes it can take a year. So we're in this huge pod for months. I said, there's not a lot of therapy we can do to make that muscle stronger right now. But what we can do is we can start training your brain to understand how to activate that muscle with the new nerve. So a lot of times, 
Let's say I'm going to use a totally different one. Sometimes they can use the suprascapular nerve and that does shoulder shrugging. And sometimes they'll stick that into the musculocutaneous to get elbow flexion. So I'll be like, I want you to sit down quietly for several times a day. And I just want you to think about shrugging your shoulder and bending your elbow at the same time. And I want you to consciously think about how that activity would look like. And maybe you're helping, your hands are doing an easy activity of maybe carrying an empty laundry basket. Or if you've done that patient-specific functional scale, or if you've just had you know those nice conversations with them, you can try and figure out what they enjoy doing or what they want to get back to doing and see if you can incorporate some of that graded motor imagery into that. But I think that's really important to establish that connection in the brain prior to the reinnervation of the muscle. How do you, you know, I know it's the connection, but a lot of times, and I don't know if I'm going to say this, there's a disconnect, like almost even the patients that I have worked with, like to them, that arm isn't there. And whether it's pre-surgical, post-surgical, how do you, you know, yes, we have the graded motor imagery and, but how do you work on that with that patient? I think just maybe having them be more, and it sounds really bad, but more aware, just even having them look at that arm, recognize that arm. In my population, and maybe it's because I only see them like once, then I usually get the people super wanting to be there and learn everything they can in that session. I don't get a lot of that in my practice. And I'll give you like an example. I mean, a gentleman I have is not, it's not a traumatic injury. So he basically had a stretch, but he's totally consumed by this arm and he has a functioning arm. I mean, it's pain. Most of his complaints are pain and his arm is complete. I don't want to say completely fine because, you know, his perception of pain, I don't know what that is. So I can't, I don't want to assume anything, but like, even as far as he has the physical ability to reach forward, but he doesn't like he'll grab it with his non-involved hand and put it in his involved hand. And it's frustrating because I'm like, you have the motion, it's there. And it's almost like he's choosing not to use that hand. It's almost like he's fearful of the pain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think in those types of situations, yeah, we have the graded motor imagery. And I do agree, like some patients can really buy into it. And then I have other patients that, don't buy into it. And so I sort of throw that out the window. And I think in that situation, what I'd really like to do is maybe do, and I haven't done it, but some constraint induced therapy where the other arm is sort of restrained for a while. So they're forced to use it. If pain is one of the big issues too, and they've never been evaluated by a pain medicine specialist either, that might be something to consider too. Do they need some type of pain management program by a physician. And I know that this injury is it's different, but it's not, you know, like, yes, it is a brachial plexus injury, but I mean, he's, you know, at the point where he's wearing the sling 24 hours a day and he has full function in his hand. I mean, he has like 40 pound grip strength, like, so it's there, but he's, it's almost like he's enabling the injury, I guess you want to say, I don't know. Yeah. I think it might be one of those times I'd be tempted to hide the sling in therapy and 
or tell him I'm going to keep it for a session or two. And next time he comes in, he can have it. And see what happens. Yeah. It's funny because he's not even aware that he's doing it anymore. Like he. Yeah. Cause it's such a learned habit. Yes. He's like, I don't even notice that I do this anymore. And I'm like, like, I'll go to hand him something and he'll reach with the, the non-involved, grab it and then put it in his left hand. I'm like, why did you just do that? Like reach with your, <laughs> he's like, oh, I forget, you know? So he might do really good if you sent him out and put the sling on the good arm. Yeah, that might be a good idea. <laughs> He'll think I'm nuts when I say, hey, we're putting the sling on the other arm. <laughs> That's okay. Sometimes I, I tell patients, you know, I haven't really done this before, but here's what I'm thinking. Let's give it a try. Yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not even really seeing him for the brachial plexus injury. I'm seeing him for a carpal tunnel release and an ulnar nerve decompression. But that's what had started all it, the process of, you know, the injury itself was initial onset of brachial plexus injury. So that's where we're at. Stephanie, as part of your multidisciplinary clinic, is psychology also involved? Because we recognize that these patients have had trauma and this is going to be a long haul. Is that a discipline that y'all get involved as well? It's not something we get involved routinely, but if the patient needs it, they will refer to that discipline as well. I do think it would be such a nice dream to have like rehab psychology always in the HAMS clinic to help so many different patients. I think that would be an awesome thing. Yeah, I agree. Now I may be throwing this out there, but I'm putting you on the spot. But if you had in a quick hot second, think of like one of your most memorable and possibly successful patients Do you have one of those? And, you know, usually everybody has one that pops into mind. And would you maybe give us just a short, quick synopsis of his case or her case? Sure. I don't know if I really had a lot to do with it, but it was one of my probably more phenomenal cases. And I think because the person just had an upper trunk injury. So really, it was only their shoulder involved. And the doctors, again, are more successful with reconstructing a shoulder than they would be with a hand. And so with this person, I remember they did a nerve transfer. They did the lychee bang bong. And this is sort of when I was first starting and I was just amazed because I hadn't seen this result yet. But that is again where they take a branch of the triceps. So they're going to use elbow extension or wrist extension to get the deltoid to work. And I remember one of our surgeons came up to me and said, you need to strengthen him. And I was like, okay, well, in in my head, I'm thinking, okay, we have to start down in a gravity eliminated position, having them just lay on their back and do snow angels. No, this guy had a five pound weight. It was raising his arm up like in a jumping jacks motion above his head. And I was like, whoa, I haven't seen this before. I think that's been one of my favorite memories. There's been some other patients that I've really enjoyed working with because some of them I started prior to any surgery and then I got to work with them after surgery. And a lot of times their goal after you continually work with them is to have that helper hand. And so this gentleman had a panplexal injury. And so the doctors did a more extensive surgery on him. We really struggled getting his MPs into flexion. So we had to make them all the fancy dynamic splints to begin with. Unfortunately, they weren't successful, even though the patient was compliant. 
And from there, they had to do surgery and release the MP capsules to get him down into flexion. And then they did some work to get him back elbow flexion. And I remember he would come up regularly and we'd work on that activation techniques to get him that elbow flexion. And he was so happy when he was able just to start walking around and maintaining his elbow at a 90 degree position and not having it look more flail. And then also just having a key pinch. Sometimes them being able to have a key pinch and to be able to hold on to like a piece of paper or maybe help feed themselves or hold a comb is such a life changer and such a nice thing for them to see that progress. So those are probably two patients that have stuck out in my head quite a bit with their surgeries. And I think one was just because I bonded with them because I got to work with them for a long time. And the other person, I was amazed because I never thought I'd see a result like what I did. And how about those patients that, you know, have those secondary injuries, such as traumatic head injuries? And how do those usually end up panning out or faring? Because, you know, you have that complexity of following directions and, you know, all those other kind of things. How do they usually do? So again, it depends. It depends on how well they can follow your program, but also how much caregiver support they have. So they have really good caregiver support. It can go really well. And then there's other times I just have to keep it really simple and just keep with like maybe one exercise. I think one of my problems is I see a deficit and I want to fix it. And then I want to fix this. And then I want to fix this. And I should be honest, I have these people for one hour. A lot of times I just need to give them the three most important things to do that are going to make a difference. Because if you give them less and they can do it well, they're going to do better than if I gave them 12 things to do and then they can't follow through. So in some of those instances, I will work a lot with the local therapist as well. Or I'll write out a letter to the local therapist being like, hey, can you address X, Y, and Z as well? but I'll start with the three most important things in my therapy session. The other thing we had that we're really privileged where I work is we have really excellent patient education that really describes things in detail and describes progressions of how to strengthen after surgery. And that really helps. And so often I'll give the patient a copy to keep at home. I also give them another copy to keep at therapy. So the therapist can have one too. And that's, I like doing that because a lot of my patients are from rural areas and their therapists that they see, this may be their first brachial plexus patient that they have ever seen. And now the doctor has done this really amazing reconstruction, but is doing things that therapists may never have heard of before. And so how can I help facilitate that transition back home as well? So what would your, I guess, advice be or your top, maybe top three tidbits for someone who might be either new grad or a new hand therapist out on maybe in a rural setting or not, not close to a large facility that is performing these operations, but they're seeing these patients. What would your advice be to them on how to start? Where do you start with a patient who just had one of these procedures done? Great question. So I think one of the first things is, you know, a lot of major medical centers now you have access to your own personal medical chart. 
So these patients have access to the surgical reports. I think for that therapist to read the surgical report and, you know, they might have to get out a blank sheet of paper and be like, okay, they did this, they did this, and they did this. And then really think about the timelines for things. Also, with some of the reconstructions, there's lifetime restrictions. So we didn't talk about that yet. But if the doctors take intercostals and they hook them up to make my elbow bend, there is a 90 degree, really, shoulder flexion, abduction, lifetime precaution. So if they raise above that, they're going to rip that nerve transfer out. And there is no other reconstruction option typically at that point. And so if I'm the therapist, I really want to know, again, the surgical report, what are any precautions or restrictions? So if you don't know, just contact the physician. The physicians will help you. And I know that can be really challenging. And then I think really understand that nerves grow very slowly. And so versus seeing the patient twice a week, spread those visits out, especially if they're health insurance that they may have, if they're limited to a certain number of therapy visits a year, make sure you save them. So I think those are some of the big important things that I like. And I also think if you haven't really done one of these before, reach out to that physician as because if they've already seen a therapist, such as like at our facility, we're happy to help them and get resources to help them treat that patient. So a lot of times, like, I'll take past lectures that I've done, and I'll I'll send them to them if they want that reached out. But that's one of the things I do, and I assess when they're with us as well, is, hey, what are you doing at home with your local therapist? And try and help facilitate that treatment as well. And a lot of times, we'll just, like, write a letter of recommendation. You know, I can't write orders But if I'll just write like a letter of recommendation and send that with them that day too, I think most therapists are pretty appreciative of that guidance. That's really good advice of reading the op note. I think that's true with most any post-surgical patient. It's your roadmap. It's what the physician did. And like you said, it's even timelines because we know a lot of these things, what the surgical procedure can equal a timeline or a specific, I don't want to say protocol, but again, your roadmap of what you can do, what you can't do, or even just, so yeah, I think mapping that out and writing that out. I know when I was a student, I remember one of my CIs, we were on paper then. And so we'd pull out a highlighter. Can't do that as much anymore, but even just like you said, taking out a blank piece of paper or drawing out. I had a patient once that had a a blast injury and had a, a brachial plexus injury. And I had to figure out what was working, what wasn't, drew out the plexus, made notes on that as to what was repaired, what was not. And it gave me a visual and helped guide me as we went through her treatment. So I think that's really great advice. Yep. And another thing I like to tell a lot of newer therapists is don't be afraid to look things up. Go back to the textbooks. Like to treat brachial plexus person, you don't need to have the entire plexus. You don't need to know how to draw it out. You need to know how to go look up the information. So if that patient had an axillary nerve injury and it was just isolated to that, 
what are the muscles and what are the deficits that can help guide your treatment plan as well. And to be honest, I still do those things. I don't see brachial plexus patients every day. I might see them three times a month. But just even because I do a variety of different things, my brain, I don't have everything quite memorized in my brain and have it crystal clear. So a lot of times I'm not afraid to go back and look things up. I do that with our students all the time. I do that with, we have a fellowship program in our hand clinic. And I do that all the time in front of our fellows and our OT level two students. I'm like, we have to go look this up. And I really try to be that role model of you don't have to know it all in your head. You just have to know your resources. So I I think, yeah, I think we kind of covered everything. I do want to mention that Stephanie has, we have a recorded webinar in our library through ASHT. So anybody wanting to learn more, that was an excellent webinar from a couple of years ago. So it was like five, it was in 2017, I think I looked it up today. Yeah, it was, but it was excellent. So if any of the listeners want to go back and check that out, feel free. But Stephanie, thank you so much for joining Kara and I. We really appreciate it. And we got a lot of good information from our discussion this evening. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And if anyone ever has any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. Is it okay if we include your email in the show notes? Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.